Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. Go behind the scenes with today's top filmmakers as they discuss the techniques they bring to the art of motion imaging. This podcast is sponsored by the ASC Masterclass, a five-day seminar taught in Hollywood. Learn more at theasc.com. Welcome to the American Cinematographer Podcast. I'm Ian Marks, a contributing writer for American Cinematographer Magazine. In this episode, Frederick Elms ASC discusses his work for writer-director Jim Jarmusch's latest film, The Dead Don't Die, in which the denizens of a small, unnamed town are beset by a zombie infestation brought on by the man-made effects of climate change. As all hell breaks loose, a who's who of independent cinema, including Bill Murray, Chloe Sevigny, and Adam Driver as a trio of country-fried cops, Tilda Swinton as an otherworldly undertaker, and Tom Waits as a cantankerous mountain man, breaks the fourth wall with their dry observations on the fate of humanity. Elms's interest in photography was sparked at a young age when his father gave him a Leica camera. He studied fine art photography at the Rochester Institute of Technology and the George Eastman House before pursuing a master's in fine art from New York University, where he studied under accomplished Czech cinematographer Beta Batka. Combining his education with a great admiration for the work of Swedish cinematographer Sven Nykvist, Elms embarked on his career as a director of photography. After accepting a fellowship at the American Film Institute in Los Angeles, he was fortunate to meet and work with two icons of independent cinema, John Cassavetes and David Lynch. These two early collaborations would influence the work of his entire career, which includes feature-length narrative, documentary, television, and commercial films. I spoke with Elms at the offices of the International Cinematographers Guild, Local 600, in Midtown Manhattan. Mr. Elms, thanks for being with us today. Okay, you're, you're absolutely welcome. I'm, it's a pleasure. This is your eighth collaboration with Jim Jarmusch in 30 years. What is it that keeps the two of you coming back? Gosh, that makes us sound so old. I, I, I think that, you know, there's a, a familiarity that's very comfortable at the same time challenging with Jim because he, he always brings something new uh, a new idea to to any film that we do. So, on one hand, it's it's it has the the sense and feeling of a Jim Jarmusch film uh, in its content. Yet, there's something you know fresh and different about it. Like uh, this one's about zombies. What is it that makes it a Jim Jarmusch film? You know, I I think. The, the thing that appeals to me about Jim's films is that on the surface, not much appears to happen. That what happens is all underneath. And, and only if you're patient watching it and only if you are willing to stay with it and, and do a little work and dig just a little bit uh, to reveal those subtle things that are happening with the characters um, that the, the film uh, takes on a new appeal. Would you say that your collaboration has evolved over the years, the way that the two of you approach the process of making a film? Well, I think our, our relationship has evolved. Uh, it, um, you know, we started with, uh, with Night on Earth, and, and that was, uh, it was kind of a trial by fire 
initiation because I had, uh, you know, done films in, in moving cars before. Jim had not. Jim thought it would be easier than it was. It's always difficult, uh, and it's particularly difficult when you do it in five different cities uh, and shoot only at night. So these were challenges that were built into the story, uh, but Jim felt very comfortable that he had his actors in a very small set and he had control over them. So, you know, we, we just went for it. Do you find that that remains true? It's one of the constants throughout your collaboration or just really with any film is that it's always more complicated. It's always harder than, it's gonna, than it seems on the surface. Yes, I, I think that it's always harder than you imagine it is. I read the script and I see the simplest possible version of all those dialogue scenes uh, in my imagination. And I kind of carry that into the conversation with the director. And then uh, suddenly I learned that the director has these other ideas. And incidentally, we'd like to do this. And incidentally, uh, in, in the city of Rome, they only do this. And in the city of Helsinki, they only do this. Uh, and these are differences in those stories. So we have to make them distinct. And it, it, it adds layers and layers of complication to the, the simplistic view that I had in the beginning. Does that hold true for The Dead Don't Die? Yes, The Dead Don't Die is, is particular because on top of uh, the notion of zombies and, and, and my curiosity over w what Jim saw in zombies, creating the zombies was a whole other process because they're complicated. They involve uh, you know, visual effects and prosthetic effects uh, and trickery. And though I've done that before, this is not a very big budget film. Um, it's quite modest and, you know, it, it, it was stressful. What was it that Jim saw in the zombies? Why, why a zombie film, particularly given the, the kinds of films the two of you have done before? I know he'd made a vampire film and in a way that, that seems almost more in his wheelhouse. Right, right. The zombie movie, I'm not sure where it came from. I really don't know. I know that he had, uh, he's had this idea for a long time. Um, he, he's been fascinated with zombies. He's seen the zombie films. He knows them. He wanted to pay homage to George Romero, and he just needed to add his own, his own story to the, the zombie list, I think. Having read the script, what is it that he brings to this particular genre? Oh, I think what Jim brings is, 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 is a personal touch. I mean, it is a look at these characters who, who can't believe they're up against zombies. Um, and, and for me, they're treated, at least in his directing, in a way that's, that's more three-dimensional than, than other films. It's, it's a film that has some shocks and some scares in it. And it certainly has uh, zombies uh, uh, being decimated and, uh, and, and killed. But the, the characters who do it, I, I think, have a little more depth to them. They're not just zombie food walking around on two legs. Right, right. I think that they're not. I think that they are, they are thinking people. And, and the, the layer that, that Jim added uh, that includes referencing the fact that they're in a movie, that this is a movie about zombies, uh, you know, was just kind of icing on the cake. So The Dead Don't Die starts out in a very straightforward fashion. There's nothing on the screen or in the music or dialogue to hint at the ominous turn 
that the film eventually takes. And when things do take a turn for the weird, and not just with the zombies, but also once the characters start to recognize that they're in a movie, uh, does that free you up to be more intentional with the photography? Can the photography be more self-conscious? I think, yes. I think recognizing uh, that the characters are in a movie as part of the script um, allowed me to do some things I might not otherwise try. Certainly, Jim and I spoke about it a lot. How does the photography uh, reference movie making and even does it um, in the way that the script and the characters do ultimately in the film? So we threw around lots of ideas. I mean, I thought about things like you know how to make the driving scenes a little more fantastical. Um, are they are they driving, you know, in in a world where the the picture outside the the, the windows is black and white, you know, uh, as a reference to something different, or or uh, you know, do we see off the edge of the car and and see that it's not quite a perfect world in the movie making sense? Um, you know, how do we reference it? I, I I came up with ways that are much more subtle that I think Jim appreciated and, and kind of agreed that we should go with the, the more gentle approach. Um, but, you know, you know we, 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 did, we did several things that, that allowed us to, uh, you know, in our minds, you know, reference movie making. From a photographic perspective, from a cinematographic perspective, or, or just generally speaking? You know, my conversation with Jim was about how we do that photographically. For instance, in some of the driving scenes, I decided not to try to be realistic about what's outside the windows uh, while the car is driving along. Uh, and what you see back there, um, if you see anything at all, is, is really just abstract lights and a little bit of movement occasionally, as opposed to a, a perfectly placed uh, you know, uh, plate uh, photographed at another time. So we, we tried to do it more subtly, I think. Was that uh, like a combination of poor man's process and green screen, or how did you, how did you accomplish it's, that? It's all, it's, all a, uh, it's all both. It's both things. So for the night photography, generally, we, uh, we photographed uh, it on a stage and we, we made the background work with moving lights and abstract things in the background. In the, in the day, driving scenes, uh, it is real plate photography, which we manipulated slightly to just change the feeling of it a little bit. Sometimes uh, for the night scenes, it's night scenes shot during the day, you know, day for night style, in order to give it a little different turn I did, I did actually notice the day for night work. Uh, when I saw the film, I made a note about the day for night shots. And I think I'd just forgotten because the results of your day for night cinematography are so subtle. And I was wondering, is that, is that a, was that a stylistic choice or a practical one? Because so many scenes end up taking place at night. It's a combination of, of, of things. I mean, when Jim and I spoke first, about what makes this film different um, and how we pay homage to George Romero and, and perhaps reference um, B films that were forced to shoot day for night as a technique. We, we talked about how we want the film to look and, 
And I brought up the notion of, of day for night photography, um, which is something I've done occasionally on films, uh, but never really extensively. Um, and, and what I told Jim was it's, you know, we make the sense of the feeling of night, uh, but shoot it during the day. So the sense of night for me usually is uh, a, a moonlight, a moonlight that is everywhere, that, that is backlight, and it, and it has a, a different feeling that the shadows are, are much deeper, uh, but I still see some detail, and I still see the people's faces and their expressions, and, and oftentimes there's car headlights in the background, or there's a street light, or there's uh, a porch light or something that gives me a reference to another, uh, you know, to a, a, a night world on top of this moonlight. And so he and I worked on bringing those elements together to make our nights feel a little different than traditional movie lit nights. Is that generally hard to do? It sounds like this is um, a technique that doesn't get employed, I think, as often maybe as it, as it used to now, because you have cameras that see better at night. And, and people are, I think, much more interested in naturalism. Right, right. Well, I think that you know, when it comes to, to naturalism, we're in, a, in movie making, we're all just creating our version of naturalism. I mean, I think if you took pictures of certain streets at night, just snapshots, you'd, you'd find that the lighting, the existing lighting on the street or the existing lighting out in the field with real moonlight is really very different than movie lighting for the most part. We, you know, we do all sorts of things for convenience in movies. We bring the light around and, and you know, show enough of the actor's face to see their performance. We put a little light in their eyes oftentimes. We conveniently put people standing in front of cars with headlights so that they have some light spilling, an excuse for light spilling up on their faces. We do many, many things that are manipulating you know, the situation to make the night be the way we want it. And this was really just a way of making night be what we wanted by going with day for night. When you see day for night, you know as a viewer consciously that something's different. So you either choose to go with it or you can't unsee it. I, I agree. I, I think that, and that, that was that decision to go with it, to create an, a night look that the audience, we felt the audience would, would accept what was important to us because we, we really wanted to do it our way. We wanted to have a consistency about it. And yes, we chose to do a lot of the film that way. There's many, many scenes that, that, uh, that are photographed at night. And in many ways, this made it easier for production as well as giving a stylistic uh, you know, boost to the film. Which camera did you use? So I used uh, an Arri Alexa LF camera. So it's the bigger format camera, you know, which requires lenses that are cover the larger, the larger chip size. And I, I like it because it's a big negative. It's a big area that you're capturing an image on. Um, you know, it's really used. It's like having your Leica or Nikon still camera. It's that big an image. Um, and, and that big image combined with a slightly wider than normal angle lens pushed fairly close to people's faces gives me a sense that, that I'm right there with them. It gave me a sense of realism that I was looking for 
uh, and perhaps made some of the things that happened in front of our camera uh, a little more shocking. Is it easier to shoot day for night with a digital camera, let's say, versus shooting on film? I mean, being that that's what the technique was more or less invented for. Right. Well, day, you know, day for night, as you say, day for night is, uh, was initially used in Hollywood films when when there were big expanses of countryside that you had no hope of ever lighting it. Um, so to take the camera out in the day and plan it so that the sun became your moonlight and it was all backlight and it was just shapes and graphic things moving was fabulous. It really, it really you know, gave you something, a picture that you could not otherwise photograph with, with slow old fashioned film stocks. And then in Hollywood movies, they would, uh, you know, as soon as you cut to the close up, they would, you know, be on a soundstage somewhere. They would fake the background and light the close up the way they wanted and intercut it with the day for night. So, you know, we didn't, we didn't quite do it that way, but, but that was where the technique came from. I think with digital cameras, it is actually easier. It's partly easier because you can see the results or roughly the results. Uh, it's easy to do tests ahead of time, which is what we did to, to find the look that we wanted and to see just how the camera could help us get there. How did you accomplish that on this film? Well, we, uh, when I decided that Day for Night was, was a real option and that Jim was on board with the idea, I took a camera out, uh, you know, one afternoon in the sunlight with a couple of actors uh, in front of in front of the lens, and I played around with where the backlight looks best, and I played around with do I have to underexpose it? Can I use a filter? Uh, what happens if I add a little light of a different color to fill in the shadow? Does that make a difference? I tried dozens of of, of possibilities to, to get a feeling of it. Then I took those files from the Alexa, uh, the, the the LF camera uh, back you know, into the, the post-production house and projected them on a big screen and, and with a colorist found, discovered what we could do with what we could do with the picture that made it feel like night for us. Was it a combination of lighting, filters, exposure, post-production? I mean, it's, like it's a combination of everything, but, uh, but what I realized was once we found the, the, the formula that was right for us, it became, uh, you know, something we, we had to stick with. So suddenly, if we had this, this, uh, this wonderful notion that uh, this idea that, that our day for night involved only backlight, only, only hard sunlight, uh, and lots of deep shadows, and on the day of production, uh, it was a cloudy, drizzly, rainy day, uh, it really, you know, everything changed, you know, and, and, and we found that some things we just couldn't shoot if the weather wasn't with us. Uh, some things we could light and make work, uh, but it was, uh, it was a give and take process to, to keep it in our world of, of day for night. Is that a process that you can take with you to other productions, or do you find that um, it's entirely dependent on the circumstances, like the immediate circumstances that you're in. Oh, that's a good question. Well, you know, I think that it's a technique. It's, it's, 
it's a way of getting the effect that you want finally in the film uh, using the tools you have. And yes, I think day for night is a technique. The things that I learned on the dead don't die are, are wonderful and, and could help in the future. I don't see the need to repeat myself and I'd, I'd much rather explore some new territory. And I'm sure that this is my version of you know, day for night on a zombie film and that, that, that anyone else you know, shooting a zombie film you know, could do it better and, and differently uh, using the same basic tools. So it's, it's a really a matter of your interpretation of what night should look like. Where did you rent your camera from? The camera gear came from uh, Airy uh, CSC. Rental here in, in New York. Yeah, all, all here in New York. And, and I, I chose the Alexa camera because I've used it for many years and I like, I like the color science. I like the way that the image is, is formed and, and, and the response that I get from the chip. Uh, I find that I can really manipulate it and, and certainly in the case of this day for night, we did need to manipulate it. We need to, to be able to, to change it around later, uh, you know, to get the night look we wanted. And, and in fact, we, we, we made special LUTs that, you know, helped us get there, that I could, I could pipe that look back into the viewfinder. So even though I was photographing a day scene in the viewfinder, I would see an image that was pressed down and, and quite desaturated and much, much more like the final image would be to help me, uh, you know, wrap my head around, you know, how the action played. Is that something that you just used to check your work? You know, we, while we were filming, we really filmed the whole uh, log C image. So we have all the information that we could want, um, but we knew having experimented with it and made some tests that, that we could get to where we wanted to go with it. Well, I mean, just because it's a viewfinder look, right? Right. It's a viewfinder look. It, it just helped me and it helped show Jim uh, what this you know, broad daylight scene would look like later. You mentioned before using the large format lenses to get these big close-ups or to shoot really wide. And, and I, I noticed that certain characters are photographed uh, in different ways. I'm thinking specifically of Tilda Swinton's Undertaker, you know, who always seems very dramatically lit, as opposed to uh, Tom Waits's Hermit Bob, who I feel gets a lot more intimate with the camera. He gets the big close-ups with the shallow depth of field. You know, you're getting right down into the into the dirt. Um, can you talk about the different approaches to these characters? Well, yeah, I think that you know, for Jim, Hermit Bob is is kind of the thread that holds the the film together. Uh, he becomes the, the 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 conscience of the director uh, in many ways, and and so I wanted to make him feel a little special. Really and truly, Tom Waits had, had little dialogue on camera. Much of it was voiceover. A lot of it was just following him doing the things that he did and, and watching him watch the mayhem in front of him. So it was fun to watch him. And, and the best way seemed to be to kind of push the camera in on him and to have the camera float with him, either in front of him or in back of him. He was such an interesting 
looking character that I, I just didn't want to miss it. So uh, I, I guess that's where that came from. You know, for me, Tilda has the most wonderful luminous skin and, and I found it very, very easy to light her and, and she would just glow and become quite magical. I don't think there's anything special that I did. I think it's all her. This is an ensemble cast and a lot of times we find ourselves with characters in small groups. So I've noticed a lot of those wide angle shots that you were talking about, three characters stacked across the screen, uh, all in conversation with each other. You really get a sense of space for this small town uh, and the way that its characters um, interact. Right, right. Well, I, I think, yes, it, it was a conscious choice that, that Jim and I made to present particularly all three police officers as one <laughs> because, you know, this was all happening to them and around them and they didn't quite know what was up. Early on, we, we photographed some three shots of them and, and we kind of fell in love with the notion that they're just standing there talking in this kind of ordinary looking shot that maybe has a little move on it or a little push in, it's very subtle. Uh, but that for Jim, the dialogue played out very well in, in long chunks of that three shot uh, and, and he was really, really comfortable. So we never actually shot coverage of that. We, we just committed to it uh, until he felt the performances were right. Was that a product of your decision to go with the larger format lenses to have these wider angle lenses? Well, I think that, yes, I think that the, the combination of, of a little wider lens and being able to push a little closer to the actors gives you a certain sense. It, it produces um, an image on the screen that's a, a little more bold and, and uh, three-dimensional than a longer lens that's further away. So, so that's why I tried to get Jim to go that route and he seemed you know, pretty agreeable to it. So it wasn't something that came about as a result of your reading the script? It wasn't then, no. It, it really came out of the blocking of the actors on set. I mean, I had the notion uh, when I tested the camera um, and when I tested these lenses for the first time that, gee, these couple of wider lenses uh, look pretty cool if I push the lens just a little closer to the, to the actor than I thought I would. Um, that there was this little three-dimensional thing that happened that, I mean, maybe it's just in my mind, but it had a good feeling. Uh, and I showed Jim and, and he kind of agreed that, yes, even though this lens, uh, and it's hard to translate exact focal lengths between the LF camera and the standard Alexa camera, but if we just push the, the limits and, and use a, a little wider lens, maybe, maybe it can help us with the drama. So when you're, when you're talking to Jim and you're, you're trying to convey this feeling that you get from these, these large format lenses, uh, how do you translate a feeling into something that's qualitative or quantitative, as the case may be? You know, it's, it's best to show him. In this case, it was really best to show him. So the tests that I photographed with the, the actors in front of the camera, just pretending 
and moving around, when I could color correct them and create this day for night feeling and then show it to Jim on a screen, not just on your phone, but on you know, a 20-foot wide screen, he could get into it. He could see you know, what I saw. Uh, and we just took it from there. We, we noted the things that looked uh, like they were working and, and succeeded and others that weren't so good. And we just built on it uh, in, in terms of our base of knowledge. Do you find that the more that the two of you work together, perhaps less needs to be conveyed in, in order for the two of you to, to understand or to come together on an idea? Yes, I think for Jim and I, uh, the time we've spent together in the past has really helped us understand each other better and, and allows us to use less words, to, to be more concise in our descriptions, because I know what appeals to him and what doesn't already. Jim is very respectful of the process that I go through to find something, as, as he is with everyone on the set. Uh, you know, the wardrobe department and the art department designer and, and all those, you know, all have ways that they work, and Jim tries to give them guidelines and say what he needs and then see what they come up with. Uh, and that works well with me as well. So we, we, we found a basic you know, ballpark visually to work in. I made some tests. I showed him some things. We talked about it. We picked up on the, the ones that worked and made another series of tests and, and took the next step. So by making tests, by using visual references from paintings or photographs that felt right, um, you know, we zeroed in on it. Uh, you said before that one of the things that you and Jim wanted to do is pay homage to George Romero's films. Thematically, you can see that, but photographically, cinematographically speaking, how did you want to pay homage to this filmmaker and his films? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that referencing George Romero was, was really more important to Jim and, and the way that he did it was through the dialogue occasionally, certainly through the, the characters that he chose to create for the film, for the, the reference of details um, that are particular to George's films. Visually, it wasn't so important to me. I, I felt pretty good about working with the day for night and getting the most out of it um, and not that that's specific to George Romero, but as a genre thing, I think that it, it's, it's valid. And it, it, it creates a feeling in the film that's different than, than another approach to night photography. Now, once the film really gets going, its tone oscillates between this very broad and also very dry humor. Uh, is that something that you needed to be conscious of? Uh, in the way that these scenes are, are, are lit and photographed? You know, I think the tone of the humor I really leave to Jim. Um, I knew the script. I knew where the humor was and, and, and when it was referred to. Um, I, I don't think I consciously changed the photography around that. I think that the photography, in a sense, is, is a through line. That, that, that helps hold these things together. So even when the cops are sitting in the front seat of the car at night surrounded by zombies 
and, and can have this absurd conversation about being in a movie that I haven't, I haven't wavered. It seems to me that in a Jim Jarmusch film, you would find yourself in the middle of these improvisational moments. You know, Jim, Jim starts with a script, and, and the script's pretty important to him. He always takes the actors beforehand and rehearses with them, and, and from those rehearsals, just kind of one-on-one -on -one or, or two at a time, he gets ideas and then rewrites those parts of the scripts. Um, so it's constantly updated uh, as he has conversations with the actors and they, they give him ideas. He goes back and, and reforms it. Um, so it's really constantly developing. On set, there's really very little impro improvisation. He doesn't do it. There's, there's a written script and he, he, really, he really stays with it. Uh, for the most part. So even when the characters are joking about improvising a scene. So, so yes, e even what, uh, what, what sounds a bit like improvisation is, is scripted by Jim and it's all, they're all ideas that he's worked out with the actors ahead of time. They learned the lines and they, they played it on set in front of the camera uh, a couple times to get the timing right to see how the, the, the humor worked in it. Uh, but it is written. Yeah, that's interesting too because a lot of modern comedy is of the type where the timing is found later on in the editing room. It's a certain type of humor that I, I feel like has emerged, let's say, like in the past like 15, 15 years, especially with the advent of digital cameras, now that you can just roll and roll and roll. Right. Well, you know, Jim has never been one for just rolling the camera. He really starts the camera, does the take, stops the camera, starts over, uh, and he, he tries to get the actors to pretty much stick with that. Um, so just rolling and, and trying some things is very, very rare uh, on Jim's films. It's really, it's really pretty controlled. He's described this as a silly movie, uh, but he's also mentioned that it was a rough shoot because of the time constraints that you were under that it rained every day, he caught pneumonia halfway through. What can a cinematographer do to cope with and alleviate the stresses of working with limitations, with difficulties? You know, uh, my, my job as a cinematographer is really, uh, you know, kind of a, a great creative job. Um, and I think what comes with that territory is the necessity of helping get the scene done any way I can. So if, for instance, in The Dead Don't Die, there were many scenes uh, with many, many visual effects, and, and we did the planning and, and, the, and figured out how to do each, each visual effect you know, the best way we, we could do it and, and afford to do it, I would say part of my job was to not let the way we did the visual effect drive the movie or drive the scene. That it was a, my job was to integrate it into the flow of, of what we were shooting dramatically. So it becomes much more than just about, you know, what lens you're using or, or where the light is. It's, it's about facilitating the whole shooting situation to make it easier for the director to get those performances or to get the actors to do the right thing or to 
integrate that visual effect, which is so cumbersome to actually pull off into the flow of, of the photography so that it's, it's seamless. You know, in that regard, I'm kind of the, the, the facilitator that just uh, help, helps push things along and, and make it all go smoothly. Where did you do your color grade for this film? The final color grade on The Dead Don't Die was done at Harbor Films in New York uh, by a colorist, uh, Joe Goller, who's somebody that I know very well and, and Jim has worked with several times before. He's great and was surprisingly really on board with this notion of day for night and, and making it work for us. Another layer to that final process is the, are the visual effects in the film, you know, created by a Swedish company called Chimney, and they have an office uh, here in New York as well, and, and they were constantly building and upgrading and, and you know, redefining the effects as we went along in post-production. Was Joe the colorist who helped you build your LUTs for the day for night? Right, and, and Joe Goller was the one who helped me find that day for night look. Did the two of you develop any other looks, any special LUTs? Yes, I mean, I, I, I think every film requires a slightly different visual treatment. And yes, Joe helped me find particular ways to get the horror of the first zombie attack correct. You know, I had ideas and I had uh, lit the set in a certain way, but Joe really helped me, you know, put that all together. When you say you lit the set in a certain way, what does that mean? Well, the first zombie attack in the movie happens in a diner at night, and it's really the only very bloody thing that happens in the film. You know, for Jim, it wasn't really about the zombies eating. Uh, it was much more about the zombies being killed uh, and, the, and the, the zombies uh, sort of turned to powder when they were killed, and, and Jim liked that idea. The blood uh, was there to give everybody a good scare at the beginning, and I think it served its purpose, but it, it had to feel a certain way when that, when that attack happened. Did you light it in a different way? Was it stronger lighting, more dramatic? I, I think it's a little more dramatic. I think that in, in the diner, we, we chose a location that had some sort of brighter, saturated colors and would stand up to the red of the blood as an idea, as a color idea. Um, uh, so I think that th that all combined to, to make uh, that first attack uh, feel the way it did. Were these adjustments that you were making after the fact, or were these LUTs that were using uh, you know, the, on set, to, like, you were, like you did with the day for night stuff, to check your work? I, th I think for the, for the zombie attacks, it was really, um, you know, for the most part, uh, you know, pretty straight ahead um, in terms of the technical LUTs. Um, Joe helped us later, you know, to get the look of it right, but it was just tweaking at that point. The, the bigger step was getting those, those, uh, those LUTs for the day for night work. Is the post-production color process something that Jim is involved with? Yes, you know, uh, it's, it's great because Jim has, a, has an interest in, in seeing every phase of the film through uh, and where he 
would let me work a lot with Joe Goller alone and, and come up with um, scenes that I felt were, uh, were, were ready to show. Um, and then uh, Jim would come in and, and, and see them and we'd talk about the work that we did and, and Jim would give notes. But uh, he's very respectful of, of the process that, I, that I've gone through to get there uh, and just comes with you know, some, some questions about uh, if this could be adjusted or if, if that was really the way I wanted it. Do you find yourself making a lot of adjustments in post-production or is this something that you try to get uh, as much on set as possible? And this is, this is again, aside from the, the, the discussion we were having about day for night LUTs or, or the look of a particular scene. Well, I, you know, I've always, I've always believed that the more correct the scene is on set, the easier it will be to get where you want to go in the theater. So uh, that's why I test and that's why I, I, I get a sense of what colors and gels look like and what certain lenses will do so that when we're on set I can work you know, quickly and efficiently and, and come up with the best way to solve you know, whatever the, the dramatic problems of the scene are. The idea is to get as much done correctly as you can then uh, so you have much, much less to do later. The, the process of post-production is, is generally a little more compressed these days than it used to be. So, uh, you know, it was important to work very, very quickly to, to, to stay on the schedule of, of getting the film out in time. Do you find that you usually have enough time to prep? Do your prep times get compressed? You know, that's an, that's an understanding that Jim and I have, that we solve a lot of problems in prep, uh, and, and it's really a time well spent together. So if I can start to prep the film way ahead of any production date, uh, just so that we've found locations together and we've talked through what's the importance of this scene and, and why this location is better than that location, um, all these things lead to other questions, but at least we've asked them early and we have some of the answers uh, and we're not leaving it until the day of photography. When the two of you, when you and Jim wrap a project, is there ever any discussion about if or when the two of you will ever work together again? Jim and I are pretty good friends and I, I always wonder at the end of a film if he's you know, ever going to call again because it's, it's usually been such a grueling experience uh, that uh, sometimes it's best not to talk for, for a little while um, just because we're under so much pressure. Uh, yes, we remain friends and, and, and we are good friends and I, I, I hope that we can work together again. I, I make no assumptions, but uh, you know, production's a pretty intense uh, pressure cooker. We'll hope the two of you do work together again and we'll get to talk about it after your next grueling experience. But this has been great. So uh, Mr. Elms, thanks again for being with us today. And it's been a real honor and pleasure talking with you about your work. Well, thank you. Thank you, I appreciate it. That was Director of Photography, Frederick Elms, ASC, talking about his work on the Jim Jarmusch-directed film, The Dead Don't Die. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts and articles on the art and craft of cinematography at ASCMAG.com.
This has been the American Cinematographer Podcast. Thanks for listening. You can find more podcasts, blogs, and exclusive ASC content by logging onto theasc.com. This podcast has been brought to you by the American Society of Cinematographers, a nonprofit organization dedicated to promoting the art and craft of cinematography.